Welcome to the Digital Story Experience, a podcast made by university student storytellers. Tune in and indulge as guests share their stories based on a different topic in each episode. Enjoy the podcast where not one story is the same as the other. Commitment. We all commit to different things. For some of us, commitment means a romantic relationship or a friendship and committing to make it work. For others, commitment means remaining committed through tough times and determining to make it through. Committing to something means dedicating your time to promise that something will happen. During this episode, we talk about how different people in our lives practice committing to something and how they remain dedicated throughout it all. We explore everything from commitments to sports teams, to dedicating, to creating a better life throughout the trials and tribulations of a chronic illness. Throughout commitment comes consistency, taking the time to truly give something or someone your time and effort. Commitment isn't always easy, but it's worth it. When I think about commitment, I think about completing my communications degree at McEwen University. I think about all the factors that led me to take the program in the first place. I think about all the ideas that I had when I first committed to the program. Now, I've learned a lot in these last four years, and I've learned a lot about commitment, myself, and what it takes to truly dedicate yourself to something when you see the potential at the end. My name is Kelsey, and today I will be interviewing Marshall Whitehead on his commitment to the Edmonton Oilers. Marshall was born and raised in the Edmonton area and has dedicated the majority of his life to loving hockey, the NHL, and most importantly, the Edmonton Oilers. When he thinks commitment, he thinks the Edmonton Oilers because of his years of dedication and love and sticking by their side throughout the ups and downs of their career. Hello, listeners. My name is Kelsey, and today we will be talking about commitments. I am Marshall Whitehead. I am 27 years old. I grew up in Edmonton. I still live in Edmonton. And when I think of commitment, I think of my commitment and most of the city of Edmonton's commitment to the Edmonton Rivers. When you think of commitment, why do you think Oilers? Chances are you... Your first NHL game you go to is is the Oilers, and that was the case for me back when I was just a young kid. So um, being introduced to them when I was that young, it's, it's just stuck with me for the rest of my life. What does commitment mean to you? Commitment to me means s- sticking with something through the highs and the lows uh, and always believing in or, or following uh, what you're committed to no matter what uh the circumstances are and and like i said yeah being there for the highs and the lows and and seeing it through all the way awesome so how do you show commitment to the oilers uh well definitely based on the definition i gave you there's been a lot more lows than than highs in my lifetime as an oilers fan so i would say that even though they have not been been easy to cheer for for a lot of my life, I still cheer for them and I still 
watch as many games as I can and I'm and it just makes the the good times that much better all right so what is the importance of commitment in sports and beyond uh I think just talking about sports I I think it it's good to I, I look at it as sort of an escape from from reality sometimes you can just sit down and and turn on the Oilers and watch them for three hours and and it's a good way to to pass the time and and like I said escape from reality so being committed to them it it just makes it that much more meaningful uh when you do sit down and and watch them or, or go to a game or go watch a game with your buddies that it uh like I said there's been a lot of lows but um being there for the highs makes it that much more sweeter. So uh, commitment is definitely important when it comes to sports. Definitely. With COVID-19, many sports have been changed drastically, whereas there are going to be empty stadiums and there's going to be fewer interactions between players. Do you prefer being so committed to the sport? Are you willing to see that change or would you rather wait till it returns back to normal? Uh, it's... It's a that's a tough question because I, I would say that I I am more committed to the sport and and the Oilers than I don't want to see a dampened product on the ice like I don't want I don't want them to have to change the game uh, because the game I've been watching my whole life and playing my whole life is the same way it's always been and if if they have to change that i feel like there would uh there wouldn't be as much meaning to the results if they were to hand out the stanley cup at the end of the year all right my next question for you would be you're committed to the oilers but it has it's been proven to be a hard an uphill battle uh, watching them play consecutively throughout the years and struggle to pull through how has that affected your commitment in 2006 was really when I uh, when I became a, a major Oilers fan, and it hasn't been easy since then. But I just tell myself that it's going to be that much better when they are good again. That it'll be worth the wait. So you're definitely committed. Like Very you. committed. I've never wavered. Uh, I have never considered cheering for another team. Most of my best friends are all Oilers fans, and it gives us something to talk about whether they're whether they're doing good it's just times are good or if they're doing bad it gives us something to complain about and joke around about mm-hmm, definitely from the outside looking in it's sometimes questionable as to how people can remain so committed but also be so disappointed and I know you spoke to that but what emotion prevails throughout your commitment to the others obviously a lot of a lot of sadness and and sometimes anger towards them when you're we are as committed as as we are, and I am, and it's it's hard to watch them lose year after year. But Definitely, um, you feel that you're growing up the household you grew up in. Uh, was that a primarily hockey loving household, or do you feel that it was a mix of both, and you kind of forged your hockey loving commitment on your own? Uh. I wouldn't necessarily say it was a hockey loving household. My like my dad especially was he was just a sports fan. Uh so when we were younger, uh 
he would always have Oilers games on uh, and hockey games on, and, and I guess my my brother and I were just more inclined to watch the hockey than, than anything else. So just kind of built from there. He knew that we, we liked it from a young age and he sort of gravitated towards it. Awesome. Okay. So essentially this commitment to hockey has just been not necessarily ingrained in you, but a lifestyle that you've adopted and loved ever since. Yeah, I would say that's a good way to put it. I, I would even say that the older I've gotten, the more I've enjoyed watching it and, and, I would call myself a bit of a, a hockey nerd, especially an Oilers nerd. And I, as I've gotten older, I, I've really enjoyed it even more. Awesome. What has your commitment to the Edmonton Oilers taught you about commitment in everyday life? I think it's <clears throat> it's taught me that um, commitment can be uh, a very strong thing in in your life like I, I would say that um there's probably been a lot of times in, in my lifetime as an Oilers fan that they probably don't deserve as much commitment as they get from me and as they get from the city of Edmonton but it just goes to show that when when something's a part of your life and you want to make something a part of your life that you can be there through uh through thick and thin and and stick with it the whole way awesome very very great answer, Marshall. I would like to thank you for joining us today on our interview and thank you for your wonderful insight and providing us kind of the perspective of what it's like to be such a dedicated Oilers fan such as yourself. Most of us spend our years in university focused on getting good grades and making friends, but others haven't been so lucky. Some spend their entire time in university just trying to make it out, alive. My name is Olivia Wick, W-I-K. I am just about to finish my last year of university. Olivia Wick is a university student and singer-songwriter based in Edmonton, Alberta. Olivia is also a spoonie, meaning she suffers from chronic illnesses. So I have anxiety, depression, OCD. I've battled with eating disorders. Um, I have chronic migraines. I have um, endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, IBS, and then chronic pelvic pain as well. Yeah, it's a lot. Close to double digits, I'm almost there. <laughs> The term Spoonie was coined by Christine Miserando, an award-winning blogger who struggles with lupus. She laid out a handful of spoons on the table and explained that the spoons symbolize all of the patient's daily energy. Every activity, no matter how thoughtless and automatic, depletes from their energy supply. For somebody without a chronic illness, getting out of bed, showering, getting dressed, eating, and other mundane tasks are simple. But for somebody with chronic illness, those mundane tasks can deplete all of their energy at any given time and cause their body tremendous pain. When a person with chronic illness runs out of spoons, they can choose to borrow against the spoons of a future date, but there are always consequences. When they deplete their spoons, they are often bedridden, unable to manage any more simple activities for the day. 
Christine explains, when my spoon supply is depleted, my body takes over and I no longer have a choice of what I want to do. The pain cannot be solved by medication or cooled by massage. I am forced to lay down. And this is how Olivia explained her life to me. Every day, fighting between trying to be present at school and with her family and her friends, while also being forced to take a lot of breaks to deal with the chronic pain. It's hard <laughs> to put it to put it bluntly. It's hard because, like like I said, I'm a very Type A kind of person. I I don't do things at a minimum. I strive for the best all the time, and it's difficult to go to school and to feel like I'm not even really present, either because I'm in so much pain one day, or just because I physically can't go. And I feel like I'm, I'm missing out on things. I feel like I'm not getting the most out of my education. I feel like there's just a lot of things and a lot of experiences that I've missed in the typical university setting that a lot of other people got to experience, but I didn't. It, it's frustrating because it feels like I'm really missing out on a lot of my life and a lot of things that I should be doing in my 20s when I am oftentimes just stuck on my couch. <laughs> well, when you feel as awful as I have felt and do feel, you basically, it consumes your life. It really just consumes your entire life because there's nothing else that you can do, like you can barely function. I remember just ending my second year of university, headed into my third. Like I said, I had to travel all the way to Ottawa to find a specialist who I knew would fit me in and be able to truly, truly help me. And so it's like I've spent a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of my, just my spare thoughts and like every single moment really thinking about how am I going to get better? How am I going to feel okay? Because it's one thing to want to feel like you can function, but it's another one being able to function and accomplish everything that you want to do. It's like I have all of these goals and dreams, but I can't accomplish them if I am feeling as awful as I did and do. For most of us, when we think of commitment, we think of being committed to a sport or a hobby or a partner. But for Olivia, chronic illness has forced her to experience commitment in a different way. Commitment for me with my chronic illnesses, it's like, it's a commitment that you're almost forced into because there's just no way around it. Like you're, you, you have it. It's, they're called chronic illnesses for a reason. You can't get rid of them all the time. And so commitment, I, I've had to realize what that means to me in this kind of specific situation. Because to me before, commitment is working hard, dedication, for example, with sports. If you want to be the best of your sport, you got to train, you got to work out, you got to do that. But for chronic illnesses, it's like commitment has had to turn from commitment to productivity and results to commitment to self-love and kindness to yourself. I've basically had to commit to an entire lifestyle change. It has been so hard. And let me tell you, people look at me and they continually say, oh man, I don't know how you do that. And it's like, man, I don't know either, but <laughs> like if you were in my shoes, you'd do the same. I have had to essentially adjust what I consume and do a full 180 with my diet. 
um, which still unfortunately really hasn't helped me because um, when it comes to my diet a lot of foods like I'm sure people know like cut out dairy and gluten and you'll feel better like yes but there are also a lot of other foods that are quite inflammatory and because my diseases a lot of them are inflammatory diseases it's it's difficult to try and navigate around like nutrition so it's like trying to navigate around being a vegetarian not being able to have specific kinds of foods that normally would give you a lot of protein as a vegan or a vegetarian I can't have dairy, I can't have gluten, I can't have onions or apples or garlic really sends me for a loop, but I love it too much, so <laughs> I can't give that one up. So like I mentioned, I had to go to Ottawa to be able to see a specialist out there. He's fantastic. I love Dr. Singh. He is like my go-to guy, but unfortunately, he is everyone's go-to guy so he had a wait list of about like a year so last last summer i was put on the waiting list for surgery and um i had already been experienced or been in his care for about a year so it'll now be coming up on two years that i'll have been waiting for surgery and i was supposed to fly out there this summer and get surgery that like in, in ottawa by dr singh but then COVID hit. I have been now on the wait list for his colleague in Calgary. And I like now with Alberta kind of opening up for phase one, that's awesome. But again, like phase two probably won't happen until June at best. And that's when elective surgeries will be being performed again. But who, who knows? Like really who knows? And it's like, I see such wonderful and positive things from other people who have had excision surgery performed on them and who all, who have my conditions and they they say that it's just it's absolutely life-changing so having to wait almost two years potentially longer for a life-changing surgery is the most frustrating oh my god i'm gonna start crying talking about this because i just it's it's the most frustrating thing because I just, I just want to be myself again. It's, it's so hard. Olivia's life is currently at a standstill. Until she receives surgery, most of her day is committed to minimizing pain while performing everyday tasks. So I asked Olivia, what do you need from us? The people in your life without chronic illnesses. What can we do to help you while you wait? And her request was simple. Be patient. Be patient with us. That's the biggest gift that you could ever give us, that we could ever receive, is your patience and your kindness. You don't have to know what we're going through. You just have to understand that even though you can't see it, it's so real. Like what we have is so real and there's no outward physical effects of it. Like sometimes there is, but oftentimes it's so invisible that you just see someone writhing on the floor or like on the couch just laying there zoned out on painkillers and you're like oh well great now that you're like you've taken some painkillers like you can we can go out to the bar right it's like no <laughs> no we cannot I have uh, I have to just take my time and really do what my body needs me to do so just as as patient as you can be please be that 
a lot of the time, like we, we shame we shame ourselves and feel bad enough ourselves and are frustrated with ourselves enough that we don't need any kind of any kind of outside person saying what we're already thinking. So if you say it's okay, don't worry, I'll ask you again. And also keep inviting us out to things because because we we really love that you think of us, even though we won't necessarily be able to go or participate. Just this, like the thought that that you give is also huge because it just means that you haven't forgotten. You haven't forgotten about us and that we still matter to you. Hi, I'm Emma and I'm here today with Kaysen. You want to say hi? Hello. <laughs> Kaysen is my fiance. Which is weird to say because we just got engaged, what, two months ago? Yeah, two about months two ago. months ago. And um, we've been dating for four years, just over four years. And we've been dating since we were 16. Mm -hmm. Now, four years later, here we are engaged. Where do we meet? We met on a missions trip. I thought Kason was way too good for me, <laughs> and he thought I was weird. <laughs> but then when we got home, we started talking, and it's just gone from there. So we're just going to talk a little bit about commitment and kind of what it means and how we've experienced it ourselves and kind of its challenges and whatnot. And so I guess I'll turn it over to Kaysen mm -hmm. and ask kind of what commitment means to you. Well, I think commitment means a acknowledgement that you will stick to basically what you promise. So commitment to your job is you've committed to work every day with them. Mm -hmm. um, commitment to your spouse or fiance is you promise to marry them and live with them, work through your challenges, however many there are, and continue on when it's, yeah, hard. I guess we can move on kind of just talking about the challenges of being committed to someone. Mm. I think the challenges were greater in the beginning. Yeah. And every now and then through dating, choosing to get over arguments or yeah. try to solve arguments rather than just ending, mm -hmm. which you find a lot of people just choose to end it. Um, yeah, and like, we're not immune to getting in arguments. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, Kaysen can definitely attest to that. And like, but I think one of the main things we've learned is how to argue with each other. <laughs> And kind of and what I need, arguments. yeah, and what I need to move on and what you need to move on from it. I don't know. But then now it's not really like, you're not arguing to win or lose. You're arguing to come to an agreement. So I think maybe one of the weirder things is like people looking at us and us being so young. Yeah. And like me being 20, him being 21. And they're like, oh, they're getting married. <laughs> I think for us, 
I don't know. Like, we both agree that it doesn't really feel weird. And it doesn't feel fast mm-hmm. at all. Like, we don't feel like we're rushing into anything. Yeah. Uh. Like, my parents said yes. His <laughs> parents are excited. Yeah. Like, and all of our friends are excited for us. Everyone we know kind of... Has been telling us to get married the last two years. Exactly. So then everyone we know is so happy for us. And everyone we know is like, oh, like finally. (laughs) (laughs) But then I feel like if I ever tell anybody that maybe doesn't know us or doesn't know our relationship as well, they're like slack jawed, like Mm -hmm. (laughs) just so baffled that two people would decide to get engaged and get married so young because everyone else is like, oh, you're rushing into this, <laughs> which for us feels like the absolute opposite. Yeah. yeah, it really doesn't feel fast. No. Whereas maybe from the outside, it does look fast and mm-hmm. it does kind of look scary to be like, oh, I'm going to marry this person and stay with them for the rest of my life. Eight years. I got a tortoise. I'm used to commitment. <laughs> yeah, those live how long? 80 to 100 years. Yeah. <laughs> Jason's already committed to that. <laughs> so why not a wife, right? Yeah. What's been your hardest thing with commitment, Emma? My hardest thing yeah. about commitment? So, when we got together at 16, you were my first ever real, like, actual serious boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And, like, since we've been together since then, <laughs> you're really my only ever serious boyfriend, right? And so, like, that might have been... I feel like people sometimes look at that and they're like, he's the first person you really ever dated and he's the <laughs> person you're going to marry? Like... Do you feel like you're missing out on anything or like, I don't know, but I think that the positives of being able to grow up with one person beside me the whole time and the positives of having you to always lean upon totally outweigh any part of, I don't know, having like (laughs) five boyfriends in a year or like (laughs) having like a makeup session in a bar right like those aren't things I've ever wanted because I've had you does that kind of make sense yeah do you think that because we've grown up together you've like it's like changed how you've grown up I think it really changed how you grew up really uh, yeah because like me Matt uh, I was definitely doing some stuff that stupid and my <laughs> kid childhood and like every young teenage boy i feel like yeah um i think you smartened me up you got me into a better space in high school yeah definitely helped me out of some weird social situations i would have got myself into i was like a blockade yeah and almost <laughs> like just getting me into the workforce and getting me ready to high school to start actually working and getting myself prepared for I don't know, adult life. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I definitely think just being with your family and being with you, I experienced a lot more of life and got to go on vacations with you guys and, mm-hmm. I don't know, see the world a little bit more than I ever saw with my family. Yeah. Um, I don't know. And I think, too, like, even from the get-go when we started dating while we were young, like, I don't think we went into it just being like, or at least I didn't go into it being like, oh, I'm going to date this guy for, like, six months and then break it off right like I went in kind of being <laughs> like at least I well, I don't know I don't yeah. know what you were thinking it's kind of that thing where it's either like oh. you go into a relationship to get married or you go into a relationship to break up right like yeah. it wasn't really just like playing around for us or like 
mm-hmm. just like dating around just to, for the sake of like dating like and even though we were young like both of us agreed okay so we're dating either to really get to know each other and get married or we're dating to realize we're not right for each other yeah. and learn from it and break up because we both had that mindset that like we were in it for the long haul kind of either way yeah yeah I think a lot of that comes from the Christian background, though. Yeah, totally. And I think um, we learn a lot about that from youth to go into dating as if you're looking for your wife. Spouse, yeah. And- so I guess this kind of goes on top of that. But, like, in what ways do you think that us getting together at a young age helped our relationship? <laughs> helped me grow into a person who kind of looks for things and listens a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, Constantly working on it, but yeah. Yeah, and like I'm a super sensitive person. Yeah, and I think you've definitely helped me like realize that there's a time maybe to be super sensitive about something, and then there's a time <laughs> maybe to just like kind of let it slide. Like I don't think that was something I could really do before, and I'm not great at it still. <laughs> Are you, like, yeah, I won't say I'm good at it, but like. I think definitely, like, growing up together, it's just been a lot of us being able to grow off of each other as mm-hmm. long as, as well as, like, growing up together. It's been cool to have that person to kind of always... Balance you. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we do balance each other well now. Yeah. I even see myself become more sensitive. <laughs> Stupid videos on Facebook <laughs> making me tear up. Yeah. Um, which is never something I used to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so kind of on the other side of that, do you think that in any way that us dating so young and committing to each other so young has, like, hindered our relationship in any way? Or, like, maybe made it more difficult? Or maybe, (laughs) I don't know, anything maybe more on the negative end of things? I don't know if it hindered our relationship, but I think in some aspects it hindered different things we could have done. Mm -hmm. like. I didn't go to my grad, mm-hmm. and I really don't have a ton of high school friends that I am super close with. Yeah. So I think in that sense, it hindered a little bit of the stuff that I, other people talk about and remember about high school, whereas my high school, I spent a lot of time with your high school friends. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We've never really been able to be like, hey, I'm taking a gap year <laughs> and traveling for a year. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> like. <laughs> neither of us ever had really had that ability even if we've had the money to do it like it's forced us a lot to prioritize Mm -hmm. i think and i think one of the main things that's made us last this long is every time we've chose to prioritize each other in every way that we can right yeah and i think that's one of the reasons why our relationship is so strong and one of the reasons why like we are 20 and 21 and we feel comfortable getting married next year Mm -hmm. right what other ways do you think it's kind of hindered? I guess, yeah, just those yeah. typical things that maybe people talk yeah, about. Yeah, high school adventures or, like, yeah. memories people always talk about. I don't know. Those, those kind of smaller victories, I think, that happen in a relationship almost constantly. I think those are less exciting to tell story-wise yeah. or less exciting to, like, tell people. But for us, it's just mattered so much in our own lives and in our relationship right Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Thank you, you. Kaysen, for talking with me about (laughs) commitment and what it means kind of for us and just all of that together. So thank you. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) So. Ciao. Ciao. In this story, we meet Philippe, an old friend of mine and a devoted culinary artist. From his mother's kitchen to his father's farmland in Poland, Philippe connects the dots that have long held his commitment to food, family, and ritual. Commitment, I think it's good to break down into small acts as opposed to big ones. My cooking career and just like what kind of level of commitment I had to put in to get where I wanted to. But And that just made me think about like, if you want something to happen for you, you have to show some level of commitment. And like commitment's a really big word, especially for relationships and stuff but commitment is just like a really small thing like just like you know watering a plant every other day for my career i mean like i had to decide to commit if i wanted to get better and everybody around me in one way or another was trying to make me get better so i had to commit and i guess commitment you know I don't know what the definition is in the dictionary, but it's definitely a good amount of compromise and commitment. But, you know, that's not necessarily bad, right? I see now, you know, the level of commitment my family has shown me throughout my life. But at the time, as a teenager, I wasn't really seeing that or acknowledging that. So I guess when I decided to cook, I... um, I was in high school, and I wanted to be a psychologist, as you know. Um, and I'm like, that's never going to happen. I don't have the grades for it. I didn't even. I didn't even like. I was like, I'm going to work hard. I had zero, zero commitment to school to becoming smarter. Air quotations to be a psychologist. I was like, I guess the only thing I'm really good at is cooking because of like being in a kitchen with my mom for so long. So it was just like, it was like, when it came time to decide, it was like, boom, I know what I'm doing. And like, to this day, people are still like, man, I envy you. You just like picked something and did it, man. So I don't know. And then like at that point, and and ever since like, yeah, I mean, I want to come in, like regardless of what the challenge is, I want to come in accomplish my goal, like make this right and serve it on time, hot, super hard timing, as you know, like, I want to do that and make it really, make it really good. That's it. And I know it's just food. It's just food. I'm not a doctor. I'm not saving lives, but that's what I want to do. And I feel good about it. Spending a ton of time in the kitchen and like, you know, with my mother, watching her cook, you know, being very excited 
to eat. I liked eating a lot, I guess. So to eat meant I had to I had to see food get made. And my mom, you know, as a kid, like you know, her her, her repertoire is very big. But as a kid, it seemed so massive, and I'm like, whoa, there's all these different things happening. And I would watch her do it. I guess like I. I don't know, I could have been doing other things, but I was just hanging out in the kitchen, and, like, I quickly grasped that, like, it, the kitchen is the meeting place, and everybody comes to hang out, and people gather at the table to eat, and, you know, if, if you've ever had, like, to say grace or, like, be thankful for your food, that definitely makes a difference, or, like, you know, I grew up Catholic, so we had Easter and Christmas, huge holidays. We're like, yeah, there's a lot of ritual around the food. That was that was big. Like, you know, ritual around food makes you realize, like, or made me realize it was it was special. And like, there's occasions where you make this, and it's like that's that's great. And I wanna I wanna make food. My, uh, where my dad grew up in Poland and you were there with me when I experienced killing my first chicken picking vegetables out of the garden the same day and making a, a soup out of it right and just like remember it was a nice sunny day clear skies we had to go I think we had to go buy we had to go buy the chicken because my uncle was like oh no you're not going to kill any of my laying hens so we had to go get a broiler chicken from somewhere I, I paid like, I don't know, it was so cheap. I was like, oh man, give him more money. This is crazy. So we got the chicken. We went to the wood chopping den. Uncle showed me how to hold the chicken. So by its back legs and its, its wingtips, I had to pull them back and kind of hold everything together in one hand. And then he handed me the axe and I pretty much just like, dropped like I was holding it I just like let the weight drop onto the chicken and I had to hold it feel it convulse and just kind of die in my hand that was unique and my first time I'm like yeah I'm gonna well yeah, after that we had to of course uh, pluck pluck and gut the chicken and I was too afraid to actually uh, pull the gut sack out and all that, so yeah, we got the we got the chicken ready. And I remember I made I went to the garden and I got some leeks and some uh, some carrots and this this some grandma brought over this Italian spinach. And the leaves were like as big as a newspaper. I remember it was crazy. So I made I made a chicken soup. I also made some creamed spinach with a seared chicken breast and. And realized this chicken was pretty old and maybe not tender and good for that, but uh, that's okay. That's okay. And I, I wrote about it. I have it in my journal here somewhere. Chicken soup I made all by myself or something like that. And I guess I wanted to do that to, like, you know, connect to my father and be, like, you know, like a farm boy. The one thing I remember him saying, which which I, like, I love, I love this image so much and I, I'd like to do it myself. You would, you would say like, yeah, like, you know, on the farm I would go, I would go uh, milk the cow and drink the milk warm right out of the bucket. And then I would 
turn the rest into butter and an old fashioned butter churner. And like, like he would say these things like really happily and, and, and proud. That's cool. It's cool. I want to do that. And it's a connection to the land, but also with my father. I still believe, you know, anybody who wants to eat meat should, should take a life of an animal and raise it even first. Love it. And yeah, like, I think we should all know how to do these things, especially, you know, in the time of like fucking COVID-19 or whatever, like you got to know how to make food for yourself, right? Like there's some basic skills that we've lost in a few generations and it's really messed up. So when teaching is like, you know, guiding, you have to guide the experience and serving food is like that as well. You know, I curate an experience to learn from teaching. So, and yeah, passing down things, feeding somebody something like you get new chefs into the kitchen and you feed them their first ramp or their first black raspberry or something they've never had and you just watch watch their face change and you're like ah I did something to you for the rest of your life I just want to use nice shit and, and make the best things for people and if I had somebody stepping on me saying no this is this is taking too long this is too good I'd be out I can't I can't cut my own standards leading chefs is, is motivating them correctly when I was living in Montreal, working at a restaurant there, I was 20 at the time. This guy, he was he was just uh, just above me in the hierarchy. His name was was Vincent. He spent some time in in Paris and learned from those French guys and had some really good teachers. And part of like in the way he he did it, the way he phrased it one time, it was just like like. It's a busy Friday night, you know, the overwhelming amount of orders uh, on my station, and I'm just kind of like, fuck this, like, I don't care, you know, this is too much, I can't do it. I don't know what I was saying. A lot, probably screaming, just like, not even, no. And he would just, you know, calmly, he would, he calmly came up to me, he's like, do you care about this? want to do this? And I'm like, oh, shit. It's like, yeah, of course. And he's like, well, they, like, I, I didn't, I don't even know if I said anything. He's like, if you don't care, you can leave. Go work at Earl's. Go work at a hotel. So that was the kind of stuff that, like, I would go home and think about and come back the next day and, like, do better because of it. Because I'm like, yeah, I do care. And then that was infectious. And then I would be saying that stuff to other people. You have some people that get together and love what they do and they they care a lot. And if you have one or two people there that don't, it, it can ruin it for everyone else, right? And they're like, I don't, like, I'm working really hard and you're not going to screw this up for me. Holding your colleagues accountable is really good. And as long as you do that in a healthy way, Great bonds are built that can last a lifetime.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. A special thank you to everyone who agreed to be interviewed for today's episode. We appreciate it from the bottom of our hearts. From Emma Hansen, Jacqueline Ohm, Kelsey Lucis, and me, Jeanette Urbonis, stay healthy, stay safe, stay committed.